All right, so Heather and I have been married for 24 years. Not, well, it's not a lot. There's some of you in here that are like, you <laughs> decades to go to catch that, to catch us. But we've been married for 24 years, and we've been married uh, 24, I think, really amazing years. You know how I feel about my wife? I say it often. Um, you know that I feel blessed by her, and you know that, I hope you know, at least I'm doing it well, if I'm doing it well, that I love her probably more than any other human being on the planet, period. Having said that, I want, you to, I want to tell you that up front because I want you to know that the story ends well, okay? But if you've never heard the story of how Heather and I got engaged, how many of you have heard it in detail? Yeah, some of the youth have heard it in detail, some of the others have, so I'm going to tell you the story in detail. And I will tell you up front, the story in detail reveals some challenges with Rob. <laughs> reveals some challenges with Rob, so much so that Heather actually won a contest once at a ladies' retreat for the worst proposal among the women at the ladies' retreat. So, hopefully, any of you who are married um, and, have, and whose spouse, whose wife says, your proposal could have been better, you can always, from this day forward, point back and go, it wasn't Rob's, <laughs> right? Well, let's, so let's talk about this. So Heather and I had been dating about six months, and, and the truth is we had both come out of long-term relationships before that, and we were not really interested in marriage. We were even talking about marriage. It wasn't, wasn't where we were at. We were just enjoying being around each other and dating. And then one day my wife says, well, now my wife, but... <laughs> One day, she says, you know, Heather Starnes sounds pretty good. <laughs> now, Rob hadn't even crossed that threshold in his mind yet. And Rob's heart started going really, really fast. And Rob got very nervous. And Rob was like, what did I get myself into? This is not where I was headed because I was just a 20-something kid, right? And I wasn't thinking about that. And so I, um, um, uh, after the, after I kind of worked my way through that night, and, and, and she, she left and went home, and then, and then I didn't call her for two weeks. Because she had scared the living daylights out of me, and it was just an offhanded comment. She was just, maybe she was trying to drop a hint, I don't know. But I didn't call her for two weeks. Wouldn't speak to her at all. And she sends me this text that says she's going away with some friends for a week on vacation. So they go away for vacation for a week. So this is three weeks I haven't talked to her. And the day she gets back from her vacation, she shows up at my door and I see your cars out front. I know you're there. And so I opened the door and I said, hey, what's up? Long time no see. She walks in the door and she goes, I just want to know. Are we, are, we, are, are we dating still or are we done? Because this, this thing, they would call it now, they would call it ghosting. I ghosted her, right? This thing about you not talking to me, this is stupid. Where are we? What is going on here? And I said, well, you know, I feel like I feel like maybe we should see other people. 
And, and so we got into a discussion about seeing other people and what seeing other people would look like. And she's like, so you want to say we could, because we were just dating each other, you could go seriously date other people. I said, yeah. I said, yes, I, I want to go date other people. And she said, well, what if I want to go date other people seriously? I said, no. <laughs> That's not an option. And she said, excuse me? I said, well, that's not how this works, right? I want to seriously, I'm the one who's having doubts. So I should get to go see other people seriously. You don't need to do that. Now, what would possess me to say that? I don't know, dum-dum is probably the best answer. Men are stupid, jealousy. There's tons of reasons why this was just a bad idea across the board. I certainly didn't think any of it through. And so as we're having this discussion and the volume is raising because now we're angry, right? And she is rightfully angry because I'm telling her, no, you can't go date other people, but I can. Talk about hypocritical, right? Again, did I not tell you up front? Rob's issues are going to be front and center in this story. And so... We're arguing about it, and finally, I just went, you know, you know what? I think we should just get married. Why don't we just get married? <laughs> now, how do you go from, I think we should see other people, just, just me, yes, I know, should see other people, to, I think we should get married in probably under 15 minutes. <laughs> she, I'm nothing if not spontaneous. She goes... She goes, what? And I said, hey, no, no, no. I, I actually, this, this is, look, this is surprising you as much as it's surprising me, but I'm actually serious here. I think we should get, we should get married. And she's like, she's just dumbfounded. She's like, are you kidding me? This is so confused. She just kept looking off into the distance like, what in the world is, who, what's wrong with you? And I finally stopped, and I, I, said, I lowered my voice, and I said very calmly, and I looked at her, and I said, Honey, I'm not going to ask you again. I think we should get married. And she promptly said, Ask me again in a week. And why do you think she said, Ask me again in a week? She had to tell her mom about it. No. She wanted to make sure that Rob wasn't making some snap decision, that he was really in, that he was really committed, that he was really in this for the long haul and meant what he said, right? I don't blame her. In retrospect, I don't blame her. Now, the finish of the story is, a week later, we met up again, and I said, hey, let's get married. Will you marry me? And she said, yes. And I said, great, because the company I was working for was having a party. I said, I have to go to the bowling party now. Good to know we're getting married. And I left. Okay. <laughs> Again, can you see why she won an award for this, right? As all the women prayed over her and felt sorry for her, and it was crazy. But... The point is, Rob had some commitment issues. 
Rob had some serious commitment issues. And again, remember how this story ends? 24 wonderful years later, it has worked out just great. But in order for that to happen, Rob had to work through his commitment issues. Rob had to recognize that there were certain things in life that were more important, more important than himself. There were relationships that were more important than just getting what he wanted or doing what he wanted to do, and that was part of my maturing. That was part of my changing. And it wasn't just resolved in that one moment in time. It's always been a work in progress, right? But Rob had to make a decision to commit, to fully commit, to be in, to be all in, or it wasn't fair to her. And I commend her for holding me to that standard, to saying, no, I like you, you seem like an okay guy, but I need to know you're in before I'm going to give you my heart. I don't blame her. It has worked out well for us, though. So back to our, our text that we're going to be looking at all the way through the next several weeks, the Shema, right? Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. It says this, it says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. If that is not the definition of what it looks like to be committed, I don't know what is. All of who you are, love with all of who you are. Last week we looked at the word Shema, that first word listen, right? That first word listen means more than just to hear sound waves bouncing off your eardrums. It means to pay close attention. When he says that at the beginning, he's saying pay close attention to what I'm telling you. He also has an implied response. There's an expectation that if you're really listening, you're responding. You're really going to change what you're doing. You're really going to hear what I'm telling you to do and do something with it. You're not just going to go, those are really cool words. But then he, he launched after this word, Shema, listen. He says, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And that's where we're going to park today. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. What does that mean? Well, there are various ways we translate that phrase, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. There are really only four words in that whole sentence. Yahweh, which is God's name, right? talked about that last week. Our God is a single word. We, we have two words for it. It's a single word. So Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. In Hebrew, it's just those four words. Yahweh, Elohim, Yahweh, Echad. That's it. Four words. Some translations are the Lord or Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Yahweh is our only God, even if other gods exist. That's, that's a statement about their willingness to be committed. Because in, in their time, in their place, there were plenty of other gods. There were lots of options. It was a smorgasbord on the table. We have a few options. You could say we could serve Allah if we wanted to be Muslim, right? Right? 
So there are others out there that claim to be God. Now we know there's only one. Let's be very clear. Only Yahweh. But the options were varied then. Baal, Ashereth, Moloch, Malik, Malik, Moloch, all the above. You had lots of options, and even more than one. You could ser- choose to serve many gods. Many gods. Hedge your bets is what I would say. So that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, if one of them can help you get through life, that's the one you're going to take. Another possible translation is, is Yahweh our God is one, is echad, it is unity. That word is used literally 967 times in the Old Testament. One. It shows up almost a thousand times. It's used for many, many things. In the, in the story, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says that Adam and Eve came together and became one. They became echad. They became a single unit. Two became one. Just as Heather and I, when we got married, became one. One of the things we say to ourselves often together is we are one. Heather and I are one. That's, that's called commitment, right? We're in this together. What one of us does affects the other one. This could very much, and I do believe, is also an allusion to the Trinity. The Lord says, the Lord is one. One. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We know that now. They would not have known that or recognized that then. In 1 Kings 7, verse 15, it refers to the, the oneness of describing the height of one whole pillar of Solomon's temple. As he walks through the different components and the sizes and the measurements and what goes into it, it describes one, a single unit, numerical oneness. Whatever translation you use, and people have debated for years exactly how to translate this, but whatever translation you use, it's clear that they want to communicate that Yahweh, the Lord, has to be the sole object of Israel's worship, of Israel's allegiance, and Israel's affection. Whatever translation you use, this is about Israel being committed to one God and one God alone, and that is Yahweh, period. And that was a problem for them. If you go just a little earlier, if you go back to Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, you see this thing we call the Ten Commandments. Before he begins the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. I am the Lord your God. There it is. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of a place of slavery. And then the first commandment is, do not have any other gods beside me. There's his call to say, God and God alone. All these other little g option gods on the table are not legitimate. They're not yours. Me, me alone. You can't serve two masters, Jesus would later say, right? You can't split your loyalties. You can't split your commitments. It's a bit like Rob trying to say, I want to date other people and still be in a relationship with you because you can't date other people. <laughs> that doesn't work. That doesn't make any sense. That's not commitment. 
That's selfishness, right? And he makes it abundantly clear that, hey, there are no other gods beside me. Even if you see all these other flashy options or all these other things around you, there's nothing but me. There can't be anything but me. It addresses the uniqueness of Yahweh, his uniqueness not just in the lives of his people, but in all creation. There's only one God. There's only one like me. There is no one else. And then he moves into the second of the, t- of the Ten Commandments. He says, do not make an idol for yourself. Do not bow down and worship them. This addresses the difficulty that we have as human beings in staying fully committed to God. So if you've struggled with staying fully committed to God, guess what? There's a very long history of God's people struggling to stay committed to him. You are not alone. It's hard. Theologian John Calvin said back in the day, he said, the heart, the heart of a human is a veritable factory of idols or false gods. We can create them, make them up, right? If you, if you know the story here in, in Exodus chapter 32, when Moses went up onto the mountain, right, to, to receive the commandments from the Lord, he was gone for a period of a few weeks, right? He comes back down to find a mess, an absolute mess. If we read in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 3, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. The man who has brought us out of Egypt. Now, wait a minute. Didn't the Ten Commandments say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt? And just in a few weeks of him being on a mountain and away from them, after he's been with them, carried them, right? He's been with them to lead them in the name of God. They've seen him, the power of God flow through him as he's parted the Red Sea, right? They've seen the pillar of God moving before them as smoke smoke in the daytime and fire in the night, right? They know that God is with them. They know that God is the one who's led them out. But as soon as their leader disappears, they suddenly make this switch from the God who led me out of Egypt to the man who led me out of Egypt. Does that indicate the people of God had already fashioned their own idol out of Moses. And when Moses disappeared, they said, we need another one. They had forgotten who their God was, even though he was present in their lives with every minute. They had changed their loyalties. They said, we'll follow this God, right? I want to be in a relationship with him, but I also want to date other people. I want to date Moses doesn't work what about us what kind of false gods do we create if we are a veritable factory of false gods and idols in our hearts because that's really what an idol is right it's a false god and that the definition of what we're going to talk about as an idol or a false god is someone or something that is highly revered followed devoutly sacrificed for 
look to for meaning in life or deliverance from our problems? What are those things we put our faith in? What are those things that we look toward to get us where we believe we need to go in life that are decidedly not the Lord? In youth this morning, we were reading out of John chapter 10. We were discussing that Jesus is the shepherd. and Jesus enters through the gate with the thief and the robber. He comes through in another way. But either way, and this is what we're trying to get to, is the robber is still in the pen with the sheep. He got there somehow. The robber is going to speak into your life because he's present with the sheep. And it's important that, that you be able to tell the difference between the shepherd's voice and the robber's voice because the robber is there. And he's there for one purpose. He's there to devour and destroy. These idols, these gods that they have fashioned for themselves and that frankly we fashion for ourselves are there to devour and destroy. They're not there to lead. They're not there to shepherd. They're not there to carry you where you need to go to the promised land. Because remember, as we're reading this, that he's leading the people of God to the land of milk and honey, right? He's leading them to the promised land. He is before them, carrying them, casting away all of their enemies and eliminating them and trying to take, the, take them to the place where he wants them to be, to their home, to the place that is designed and intended for them from the very beginning. And they're still fighting with him along the way. All along the way, they're still fashioning idols. I believe that's why the people of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. He waited for an entire generation to pass the generation that had spent so much of their life putting their faith in idols and false gods that they could not see, clearly see God. And so he waited for them to pass and said, we're going to try again with the next bunch. Who are these false gods that we, that we have in our life? Well, power is a false god. We think if we're if we have enough power, enough control over our situation, we can fashion the life we want, so we try to get to that. There are people that love to be in charge. You ever met somebody who just loves to be in charge, loves to be in control, loves to make all the decisions, and really can't handle it when they're not? They may have fashioned a false god or an idol we call power. Other false gods, sometimes we look to entertainment as a false god. We look to it as the source of our joys, the source of our deliverance from our pain. Look, I'm, I'm just, I just need a minute to decompress, so I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to watch these four movies on Netflix and I'll be decompressed and I'll feel better about life. You've just made entertainment the source of your deliverance, the thing you're looking to, to bring peace to your heart. You've just created a false god. Popularity is a false god, right? Pick up any magazine, watch any news show, see the number of people that, that show up to watch people play in a concert that are doing anything but godly things. They're worshiping people that really are robbers and not the shepherd. I was sitting at a, a Wittenberg football game yesterday, which I loved. I had a blast. But I said to one of the guys I was with, I said, 
wouldn't it be great if every Sunday we were cheering like this? If every Sunday we were passionate like this, if every Sunday we were packing in so many people who wanted to lift up and worship the Lord, right? We have no trouble packing OSU Stadium with 105,000 people. Can I just tell you something? They're worshiping an idol. And I'm a football fan too. Sometimes we make education a false idol. If I, I can't make it through life without a degree, I have to get this degree. It, it, it defines me. It is who I am. It is my career becomes who I am. This is the thing I'm looking for to pull me up out of poverty or to give me joy or to make, make me whole. Some people looked to beauty, their own vanity, beauty as the, this thing that will deliver their self-esteem that they worship, I need to look my best all the time no matter what because that is what will make me a whole person. Again, false gods are these someone or something that is highly revered, followed devoutly, sacrificed for, looked to for meaning in life or deliverance from our problems. Sometimes it's comfort. Comfort can be an idol. It keeps us from loving difficult people it keeps us from sacrificing for others and from making commitments because it might bring us discomfort kind of like rob sometimes it's substances sometimes it's family family can be an idol it can be we see it as the source of our happiness or our completion and we live out our lives through our kids, right? Or through our family. Family is a beautiful thing created by God. But even the most beautiful things God has created, we can corrupt. If we make it more than what it's meant to be. Happiness is an idol. How many people do you know in this world that chase happiness? I just want to be happy. It just makes me happy. I'm happy. Can I tell you something about happiness? Happiness is fleeting. Joy is not. Because joy comes from the shepherd. Happiness comes from the robber. Money can be a false idol. We know that. I won't berate that. I won't beat that up. We can even fashion ourselves into our own false god. We can worship ourselves. I do everything for me. I tell Heather I want to date somebody else, but she can't. That's selfishness. That's me worshiping my own desires and saying yours don't matter. How do we avoid worshiping false gods? First one is to cultivate gratitude toward the one the Echad, the one and only. Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 14 says this. This is a warning to the people of God before he's about to give them incredible things and bring them into this land of deliverance and milk and honey. He warns them. He says this, Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands and ordinances and statutes that I am giving you today. 
When you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in, and your herds and your flocks grow large, and your silver, silver and gold multiply, and everything else you have increases. Be careful that your heart doesn't become proud, and you forget the Lord our God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Be careful that once you have everything you think you want, that you don't worship that instead of me. Isn't it, it's, it's interesting to me that when, we, when life is going south, right? When we are ill or people we love are ill, when, when, when we've lost our job, when we've lost our house, when we're addicted to something, when life has just gone south, we are so much better about turning to God to help us. But when life is going really, really good, it's really easy to forget who got us there. We don't, statistics show, we don't pray as much if life is going good. We don't read scripture as much if life is going good. We don't attend gather, worship gatherings together as much if life is going good. Because suddenly we've decided that the God who brought us up out of slavery, the God who brought us salvation, right? We forget who he is, what he has done, and what he is still doing, and we begin to worship the life that, we, that he has provided us. We worship the gift and not the giver. It's normal. We're human beings. We do that. We're very... Um, tangible what we see and what we feel in the moment often affects us greatly more than we would ever care to admit but we have to remember something right that we didn't get to where we are alone if you have clothes on your back if you have food in your mouth right if you have a place to lie your head at night You've got it better than the Son of Man. Right? Jesus said very clearly, I don't even have a place to rest my head. Everything, literally everything we have is because of Him. Do you need air to breathe? Did you make the air? Who made the air? God, so if, if you have the air to breathe, to just exist, probably should cultivate gratitude toward God for giving us air to breathe. Because he doesn't have to. You realize that? There's no requirement anywhere upon God to give us anything. Do you require sleeping sometime in a 24-hour period? You do. So that time that you're sleeping, you can't possibly be breathing on your own. He's given you this autonomic nervous system that just does it for you. You can't consciously think about it unless you're really talented. Shoot, some of us, me included, have a machine strapped to my face every night to help me breathe because my body forgets. That doesn't work well. 
Can your body always heal itself from injury or illness? The truth is no. We give medicine credit for it. I wonder why we don't always give God credit for it. And somebody asked me the other day if God still heals, if God still does miraculous things. And my answer is yes. He does them all the time. But I really do think, and this is Rob thinking, that he does them more in the other parts of the world because he will get the glory there. Here we would say, it's the person who developed the drug. It's the surgeon who did the surgery. We don't need God to be in the process anymore. We have entered the land of milk and honey and forgotten the Lord that led us out of slavery. If you want to see God do more, then we have to learn to live gratefully. We have to live with gratitude. Uh, I was reading an article the other day by an author named Brene Brown. Brene? Yep, Brene Brown. And she was discussing this statistically inextricable link between gratitude and joy. Those who live a life that are filled with gratitude find more genuine joy in their lives than those who are ungrateful for what they have. Have you ever wanted to look at your children when they're complaining to you and go, you are so ungrateful? Do you think the Lord ever looks at us and says, you are so ungrateful? So how do you know if you're living this life of gratitude? Well, first, are you doing something tangible and observable? Are you living in a way that demonstrates that? Are you sharing with others why you are grateful for the day that God has given you? Do you give people sticky notes with why you are grateful God created them? Are you demonstrating gratitude toward them? It doesn't have to be a sticky note. It's just an example. Are you telling other people how grateful you are that God put them in your life? Half the reason I talk and gush about my wife in public is because I want people to know how grateful I am that she is in my life. Do you talk about the people in your life that way? Do you come up to somebody, your, your son, your daughter, your spouse, your parent, do you stop and tell them, I am so grateful to have you as a mom. I am so grateful that God has put you in my life. You're cultivating this heart of gratitude. We need to do that because if we don't, we forget. We forget the Lord our God is one who has brought us out of slavery in Egypt. We forget him. We forget all the things we need to be grateful for. We are very, very good at pointing out all the things we are upset about and really bad about remembering all the things that we should be grateful for, including, first and foremost, existence. If you are here, alive, breathing if your soul has been created and god has breathed life into you which i'm pretty sure that's all of us then you have something to be grateful for because god didn't have to make you or me we forget that right as we go through life we start to think oh god was supposed to 
you know, God made me, now he owes me something. <laughs> he gave you life, and he gave you his son so you can return to relationship with him and find eternal life. What else does God need to do for us to be grateful to him? We intellectually, we say not much, but do we choose to say that? And as I said, when, when I talked about living out gratitude and Brene Brown saying gratitude and joy are inextricably linked, I see so many believers, followers of Christ that don't have joy. They struggle to find joy. Could it be that the joy of the Lord eludes us because we lack gratitude for his work in us? The second thing is, the uh, second piece of advice I have on how to avoid worshiping gods or idols is to choose not to become careless or mundane in our worship of him. We have to remember that he is God and God alone. He alone is worthy of our praise. He is unique. He is different. He's worth every bit of energy, effort, passion that we can put into this. Remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. All of who you are, all of who I am, worshiping Him with everything I've got. And that's not just on Sundays. If you're going to the Lord in prayer, guess what you need to be doing? extricating everything else from your mind and your heart and saying, I am giving you all of me. If you're reading your scriptures, you need to be doing it with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Focus and do what you need to do to focus. We all know how to focus. If we really want to focus on something, we want to focus on being a better musician, we will find the time and energy to focus on that. If we want to be a better student, we will find the time and energy and the capacity to do that. If we want to be better at our job, we will find the time and energy and the capacity to focus on what needs to be done. Do you not think that God deserves that kind of focus? Worshiping Him, doing what He's calling us to do, understanding His Word, as we talked about in the youth, learning to hear His voice over the robber's voice. That deserves all of who we are, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, all of who we are, every inch of who we are. I was reading a quote by John Piper this week about how if we fail to recognize the greatness of God anew on a regular basis in our worship of him, whether it be corporately or individually, that we dull, it dulls our view of him. We begin to treat him as mundane or normal and not unique, not the one, not God alone. He says this, it makes a person bored with God and excited about the world. If you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting to you all of a sudden. It's easy to turn to a false idol if you're not really focused on the one if you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a street light. I love that. I love that one. That's what made me include this quote. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. 
And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. We have to remember, and that's what God is calling the people to do in the Shema. Again, twice a day, every day. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Remind yourself of that. Because if we forget who our God is, and it's easy to do when we're getting pulled 15 directions with all the different things in our lives, if we forget who he is, that's when we become enamored with streetlights and fireworks instead of the sun and thunder and lightning. Because if you've ever sat out and watched a storm, I mean, fireworks are pretty cool. But one of the best things about where we live, where I live, is that I can see it coming from like Fort Wayne, right? And you can watch it just as, as the thunder, as the clouds form and as they roll in. You can see the lightning flashing across the sky. I want to grab a cup of coffee and sit on the back porch and watch. Unfortunately, it faces the west and the wind is too much sometimes. But it's awesome. It is so much cooler than anything man has ever created. But if I'm not focused on him, I can pretty easily forget that. So how do we do that? Well, come to worship in him in order to give, not to get. Come with a heart that is positioned to give to him in gratitude for what he's done for us and what he's done for you rather than saying, God, what are you giving me? That can happen very often in our prayer life. That can happen very often on a Sunday morning where we come to church and say, what am I getting out of this? Shouldn't we be asking, what am I giving to this? That's what worship is, right? Worship's about who? <laughs> right? It's not about me. It's about him. We should come in here asking, what can I give to worship you, God, for all the things that you have done for me, for the breath of life that you give me, for the roof you put over my head, for the clothes that are on my back, for the food in my belly? What can I give you for the relationships that are in my life? We come to worship, we should come to worship humbly, knowing God wants to mold us in his image, recognizing that whatever baggage we bring in, we may have to give up this week. Because if we're grateful for what he's done and what he's still doing, would we not trust him to carry us where we need to go? We also are called to come and worship him often because without him we are lost. One of the things we discussed this morning was how do you know that you are hearing the shepherd's voice in the youth again, the shepherd's voice instead of the robber's voice? Are you passionate about listening to the shepherd's voice? Do you feel him calling you? When you open this book, does it speak to your heart and to your soul? If we're listening to the shepherd, it will. If we're coming to the Lord humbly, it will. Come to worship expecting to see the sun instead of being impressed by mere streetlights. He is worthy of your worship and your praise. 
Listen, O people of God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one.